You are now listening to Hack My Age, the show that brings you guests with information on how to make yourself hard to kill and help you live to 100 and beyond in good condition. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a digital nomad currently stuck in Spain, certified sports nutrition coach and master student of gerontology at USC. I am the creator of the Longevity Master Plan, an online program to slow aging and author of the cookbook, Eating for Longevity. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review to help others find us too. Well, hello, age disruptors. Today, I'm recording this podcast with a live audience, studio audience, and all of you guys attending this recording are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. So part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they're recorded and ask your own questions. So if you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com forward slash hack my age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but free breath work and meditation classes, private consultations, downloads, there's so much. So anyways, let's get going. Today, we are going to learn how to save our joints with somebody very special who's been circulating around the biohacking community for a while now, visiting every major podcaster from Dave Asprey to Natalie Nidham. And now she's with us. <laughs> and I'm talking about the one and only Dr. Elizabeth Yurt. Today, she's going to explain the root cause of all diseases, including osteoarthritis and what we need to know about regenerative medicine before considering surgery for our knees, hips, and shoulders. Yes, there are many non-surgical and non or minimally invasive treatments for arthritis, inflammation, and so many other degenerative diseases. And Dr. Yurt is tra trained in sports and spine orthopedics, functional and regenerative medicine, and even cellular medicine. So she really digs deep getting right into our cells, which may be the most important part of regenerative medicine. And after a long career in orthopedics, Dr. Yorth decided it was time to move her practice forward to the next level. And in 2006, co-founded the Boulder Longevity Institute. And I'm dying to visit this place myself. There they specialize in advanced research-based longevity medicine that has treatments like bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Yes, please. Um, regenerative orthopedic procedures. Yes, please. And regenerative peptide therapy. Oh, yeah. That's for me and next generative, next generation regenerative services. I know it totally sounds like a sci-fi movie. So really it's amazing. What, what, what makes Dr. You someone we should be listening to? Well, she is double board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and anti-aging regenerative medicine. And although she doesn't look like it because she looks so young, she has a long history as a specialist in sports, spine and regenerative medicine that includes a Stanford affiliate fellowship in sports and spine medicine and a dual fellowship in anti-aging and regenerative medicine and anti-aging regenerative and functional medicine through the American Academy of anti-aging medicine. So if all you heard right now were the words regeneration and anti-aging, that's fine. You got it. <laughs> so, so you think she's qualified? Yeah, I totally think so. And it's a big deal to even get one fellowship. She's got two, maybe even more. So just hang on. I'm, I'm not done yet. <laughs> this is still going on. Dr. Yus has been selected as one of the 25 mastermind physician fellows an SSRP, Seed Scientific Research and Performance. And this means it allows her to stay abreast and teach others in this growing field of cellular medicine. So 
That's amazing. And the really cool thing for athletic older people like me uh, is that she's also an active athlete herself. So she totally gets us. <laughs> and she also gets professional athletes because she's consulted with the San Francisco 49ers. And for the non-Americans listening, this is American football. And she's also been with the Stanford University women's basketball and soccer. She's a dancer herself. Yay, like me. And was even the doctor for the San Jose Cleveland Ballet. Now she lives and breathes active human beings who want to keep moving in their 80s and 90s and heck, even their hundreds. Why not? Because she lives in one of the health meccas in the world called Boulder, Colorado. And I've never been to Boulder, Colorado, but I hear it's one of the healthiest places to live. And get this, with all that she's accomplished, I just read, she has, hang on, five. Yes, five kids. And you're still married. <laughs> still married. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do this? So now before I introduce this amazing biohacking superhuman, I must read this disclaimer. And just for extra protection, you're going to hear it again at the end too. So all information, content, and material of this interview is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or health care provider. Dr. Yurth will not be answering questions related to your specific medical care or personal medical decisions. And before we start, I really want to thank my biohacking bestie, Natalie Nidham, for introducing us. And if you don't know Natalie, then you have to check out her amazing podcast too. And you can hear Dr. Yurt there as well. Um, you can find her at Biohacking Superhuman Performance on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So without further ado, please meet Dr. Yurt. Welcome. Wow. Thanks for that, that introduction. It makes me sound... <laughs> I'm like, you're super human. not that important, but, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. I really do. I love, I love what you're doing. I love, you know, you and I talked a little bit beforehand about, you know, sort of changing the world of medicine. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to change the world of medicine by trying to get doctors to change. We have to get people to change and then the people will change the doctors because doctors get sort of set in their paradigms. I think, you know, after you spend so much of your life educating yourself in something, you, you're sort of a little reluctant to say, hey, maybe what I learned is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, what I find is trying to teach doctors that maybe you need to rethink, you know, doctors seem to, they, they've gone through, you know, at least here in the United States, you know, four years of college and then four years of medical school and then another four to eight years of training. And then to go back and say, oh, wow, actually everything we just learned for all that time has been changed. People don't want to hear that. And so I think the key is all of your listeners have to learn this for themselves and then hopefully find a physician that they can work hand in hand with, not who's trying to actually tell them what to do, but who will actually sort of discuss things with them and work with them, which I think that's the key is you guys are going to have to reach out and learn this stuff and then hopefully find a provider who will kind of work with you alongside you, not as your you know, we, we always say sort of taking the patient from, from passenger to pilot. We want you guys to guide your own medical care. We don't want the doctors to be guiding your medical care. You guys have to do that. And I think that's what all your listeners are trying to do. And I kudos to you guys to reach for, for learning this stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's really hard though these days. I I'm, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but to find doctors who are open-minded like that. And so I think there's still a little bit of an ego there where yeah. you're the patient and I'm the doctor and I've been doing this for years and you know nothing and who are you to tell me? And and it's intimidating because you you know you're not a doctor but you have these ideas and sometimes they poo-poo it. Oh, you heard this on internet or some podcast like Right. It's, it's really hard. So I, I really encourage people to, to push on, like you, you said, to bring this information, to come prepared, to bring the data. You can print stuff out and show the doctor and say, well, this is a study I read. I know it's only one, but, you know, it seems pretty significant. You know, you got to change the paradigms. And I think some of our biggest problem is that we put all our faith in the doctor and not so much in ourselves and how we feel and what we are doing, because you, you hear these stories all the time where you, you, you people go to the doctor and say, I feel like shit. And the doctor says, your blood work is fine and go home. But you're like, I still feel like shit. <laughs> like, well, what do I do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, medicine is still a disease-focused disease -focused practice, not a health-focused practice. And until we change that, which is not in the best interest of doctors or pharmaceutical companies or people who are making hardware to put in joints, you know, it's not in their best interest. There's a lot of money there. And so unfortunately, what, what will ultimately change things is when people are, are saying, I'm not going to go do that anymore. I'm going to do something else. Well, then the world will have to follow because there won't be the money in it anymore. So it's going to take a little bit of a push from the consumer and then just finding doctors. I mean, we have patients all over the world now, you know, because video has allowed us so much, you know, I can look at MRI scans through video. I can, you know, have people give me a lot of history, even with a joint, even without an exam now, because technology now with an MRI scan, I can see a lot of what I need to see. I, you know, and so it's reaching out to looking for somebody who is going to work with you and not tell you what to do. You know, I always say, listen, there's tons of options here. This one might not be the best for you. This one might not. You've to sort of figure that out for yourself. You know, I encourage your listeners to 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 look. I mean, like I said, we have patients in, you know, Israel. We have patients in New Zealand, Australia. You know, Europe. We have patients all over the U.S. who are, you know, who we try to do exactly that. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna tell you my thoughts on things you can do. And then it's up to you to sort of make that decision. So reach out. I mean, the doctors are out there. Eventually, the world will say, wow, nobody's coming to me for my steroid injections anymore. Maybe I should look at something else. Yeah. This is a very important point. I think you and I both have ACL tears and, um, and we at a young age. And so I'm 51 now and I tore it when I was about 23 or so. And so I've been 20 years looking at doctors and you get half of them who say do surgery right away. The other half who say you're still young, you have time. But the ones who say do surgery right away, I've always asked, I said, you know, is there anything else I can try before surgery? There's a spectrum, right? There's gotta be something. And always the answer was no, you need it now. And this disappoints me because I've been living over 20 years pretty well, like without uh, an ACL doing a lot of other things. And, and recently I, I discovered PRP, which I think we'll maybe talk about as well as some of the options, but there is a spectrum. And I'm so glad you as a doctor, we need more people like that who say, here's the options, not just one surgery done. We need more people like that. So thank you for leading the way and in, in offering this to your patients. So I would love to know, I, I need to explain people what is regenerative medicine first before we even get into that, because I think a lot of people may not even know it's either doctor or no doctor. Right. And I think people also, people always ask me, they go, oh, do you do holistic medicine? And I said, you know, I, I don't really think of it that way. You know, I, 
will combine, you know, what I consider more holistic, meaning sometimes you'll pull an acupuncture or things like that. But honestly, we consider it more futuristic medicine than holistic medicine in a sense. What we're trying to, you know, as opposed to sort of just looking at, at using some, you know, and, and we do obviously exercise and diet and, and things like that are, are paramount and that is more holistic, but we're going to pull in the stuff that's sort of bridging that gap of technology and research. I often give the statistic that insulin as a drug between the time of its invention and discovery took 17 years to get to market as a life-saving drug, and which insulin is basically just a peptide. Like all yeah. the peptides that we use, insulin's a peptide. And it took 17 years for this very safe peptide that our body produces to be put into practice. Think of the number of deaths that incurred in that 17 years time, right? And that's just the way our medical system works. So if we can take these things, these entities that have, that we know that they've been proven safe, which that's the first thing, proven safe, but between the time that a, a drug or a procedure has been proven safe and effective to the time it actually gets to market, it's 15 years. So what we're trying to do is get that to, to people earlier, right? It pushed the, the limits a little bit on that, bridge that gap between practice and research. And so I consider that, you know, when you really truly look at regenerative medicine, it's trying to find everything available that is safe, effective, and get it to people so that we can actually both prevent progression of disease so that we all live to be 130 healthily, but also to try and potentially reverse disease, to regenerate tissue, to try and get us younger. So I, I think that that it's... Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Hack My Age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. Think about regenerative medicine as using all the tools that are out there that are available, safe, effective, and bring them to you so that you can actually repair, regenerate, restore tissue, whether that's your skin or your organs or your brain or your joints, we're going to, we're going to, we have different tools. And again, that may all come down to similar tools for all those processes. But that's what I want you to think about regenerative medicine is it's not just kind of holistic. It's, it's, you know, we're going to use every tool available and tools that are not yet widely available, bring them to you at an earlier stage. There's a lot of people that may be listening to this and think in, like you said, futuristic medicine, like we're not even there yet. You know, they go think, well, it's not possible to regenerate tissue or can you, Right. And this is where we're at. We're here today talking about regenerating your cartilage or your tissue. And so, yes, it is possible. And this is where I'd like you to share a little bit more about the procedures that you do. And, uh, you know, can you really, does it work for everyone, et cetera? But before we do that, I, I would like just a little bit of background quickly, because I know we don't have a lot of time, but how do you move? Because you have an orthopedics background. Why did you move towards regenerative medicine? So, you know, I've been doing orthopedics for 30 years and, and was doing 15, 16, 17 years ago. Now, I guess I would feel like, gosh, somebody would come in with an injury and I would stick steroids in a joint or, you know, send them to PT and they'd kind of get better, but never completely better. They would, and then they would come back and something else would have fallen apart. So they started out with a little knee injury and now they've been limping around and now their back's not good. And, 
you know, it never felt like I was actually curing people in a sense. You know, there's simple things. You, if you have a fracture, you can put that back together and it's probably going to heal. But, you know, more of those, those injuries, like you tear a cartilage in your knee or, or you strain a ligament. You guys have all had that. But nothing ever seems to get back to where it was. So I started to explore how can we use things like hormones? Because if I'm a 50-year-old woman and I hurt my joint, I absolutely need estrogen to heal that joint. I absolutely need testosterone to heal that joint. Progesterone receptors are on every joint. So I started to look at how we could use hormones to help those people to repair. So I went and started learning that stuff. And this was, you know, really when this stuff was really very small. I mean, the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, there was 500 of us at these conferences. And now there's, you know, 5,000 or more. So I, I went and got trained in this stuff and I started implementing that into my orthopedic practice. I'd say, okay, hey, let's put you on a little progesterone because you need progesterone for joint lubrication. You need it, you know, for sleep. And then I started realizing that, wow, this is kind of hard to do in my 15 minute doctor appointments. You have these patients scheduled every 15 minutes and I'm trying to say, I'm trying to educate them about here's some nutrients that we can use and here's some hormones that we can use. And so that really when I was like at that fellowship training and went through all the fellowship and got my fellowship in anti-aging and regenerative medicine, I said, you know, let's open Boulder Longevity Institute because I want a place for these people where I can sit down with them for an hour and explain health to them, not just try and fix their knee. So it just didn't work in the paradigm of my traditional practice. Now I, I kept the traditional practice too. So we really had both practices where I had Boulder Longevity Institute and then I had my orthopedic clinic where we would see these patients. And what I would try and do is teach them a little bit and then hopefully get them transitioned over to where they could teach them more. And some people bit on that. And some people were like, I just want steroids in my knee. But the group of people who really want to heal would kind of transition into that. And then really, honestly, I just left my full-time orthopedic practice. I was doing both. I would see patients orthopedic practice all day. And then I'd come over here at like six o'clock at night and see patients here until nine o'clock at night. That became sort of undoable. So in February, so really just in February, and it really was kind of, because it was a little hard to leave what you've been doing for 30 years. Uh, It was sort of pushed by a a tough year of COVID. And I lost both my parents during that time. And, you know, so this tough year of last year with COVID and everything, I said, you know, this is not a sustainable life. So left the orthopedic practice and came full-time to Boulder Longevity Institute, where we could focus now a lot more on trying to educate people and doing all this stuff. And, you know, this is my passion. It's not sticking steroids in joints. It's you know, my passion is trying to make people healthy. So that's really what pushed pushed me over to this. And so in, so in February, we full-time came over here and so moved the orthopedic patients over here, which of course, the people who don't who want to just have steroids in their knee are not going to come here. And so it sort of self-weeds a little bit into where you can now start weeding the patients who really want to learn this stuff. Yeah. And get to the root cause of this problem. Get to the root cause. Exactly. You know, so when we're talking about joints and knees and hips and shoulders, you know, what is the root cause of these issues? Why are people, you know, what kind of patients are you seeing and what are their issues and how are you helping them? So I think that that's where we, we've sort of orthopedics has in this whole anti-aging realm that all of you guys are involved in. And we sort of think about, you know, all the diseases of aging, the progressive dementia of aging, the progressive cardiovascular disease, the skin integrity, all those things, you know, our gut microbiome. And joints have sort of never been kind of thought of as that part. We sort of think, oh, well, orthopedics is different. And, and I see it and I see it when these Instagram posts and people, you know, they're, they're like, oh, I'm getting my, my knee replaced or my hip replaced. And, and they don't really think about that disease of arthritis in the same way they're thinking about their progressive dementia or skin integrity or gut microbiome. They don't really think of that disease the same. And in fact, it is. 
every disease of aging, including degenerative joints, is really the same spectrum of disease. It's just different targets, right? There, if I'm getting progressive loss of, of cellular function, maybe my brain goes, maybe my skin goes, my joints will go. In fact, if you look at people who have degenerative arthritis, they have much higher risk of cancer. They have much, much higher risk of dementia. Why is that? You know, used, we used to say, well, it's just because they stopped moving. Well, that's, that's not really panning out. It's panning out that the same inflammatory processes that are destroying our joints are destroying our brain, are destroying our skin, are destroying other things. Mm. And so we now are learning that the, the osteoarthritis, the wear, what we've just considered, this is just wear and tear, is not just wear and tear. It's, a, it's the same disease of aging. It's the same as all the things you guys are concerned about. I listen to every anti-aging person out there, and I never hear people include arthritis as, you know, or degenerative arthritis in that spectrum of, of aging. And it is, it's an age-related disease, just like dementia, just like cardiovascular disease, just like metabolic diseases. And it needs to be addressed that way. So we can't just focus on, oh, let's just fix your knee. We have to fix you. We have to get those same processes. Now, why does it target the joints? Well, it's probably just genetically, you're going to be potentially more prone to different target tissues. Why do some people get dementia? Some people get cardiovascular disease. Probably there's a genetic piece there modified by our behaviors, but we genetically have a predisposition to something wearing out more than another. So what we see in degenerative arthritis, wear and tear arthritis, and spine, lumbar degenerative disc disease, they're really the same disease, is people have very high levels of some inflammatory cytokines. So inflammatory cytokines are, or, or cytokines are little proteins that tell our cells what to do. So if you get injured, these little proteins come into play and they tell your cells to start, they get a little inflammation going and let's start repairing tissue. But if I genetically, for instance, have very high levels of certain inflammatory cytokines, and there's things like interleukin-1-beta, tumor necrosis factor alpha that come into play and they get escalated and they don't turn down normally, then I'm going to go into a progressive destructive state that gets worse and, and is, is amplified by loss of hormones. So that's why maybe I survive fine until I'm 23 and then and then all of a sudden things start going awry or until I'm 30 or whatever. So all of these processes that we, we were probably genetically biased for get worse compounded by behaviors, diet, exercise, but also things like hormones. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't put those things together. I, in all the time that I've had the, the torn ACL, I always thought, well, I injured it and I keep using it and I'm active and I will not quit. So everyone has told me, well, you just use it. It's wear and tear. And you're the first person I heard who says, no, it's not wear and tear. It's something else. So when you look at ACL tears, for instance, and I tore my first ACL 18, I subsequently tore it again five years later, then tore it again. So it just kept happening. And then I tore the other one. Even ACL tears, and I'm not going to advocate, I think, you know, if you're a young person and you tear your ACL, you should fix it because it's probably going to restore the integrity, the instability there. But we know that even if you fix, and that's, so the thought has always been, if we fix that ACL and we restore the instability to, of the joint, then I've saved that person from developing arthritis. And in fact, that didn't pan out. That people who have an ACL tear at 18 have a 90% chance of having osteoarthritis or wear and tear arthritis in that joint by the age of 50, even if you repaired it and you restored integrity. So something happened at that stage. So we're trying to say, okay, fix the ACL, 
But at the same time, we know that that inflammatory process that gets escalated when you have the injury is starting to do some damage to the joint. So when we, one of the things we're trying to do is when we have these young people who tear an ACL, we work with a lot of skiers, for instance, do we, we, we try and put them on things right then. So do the surgery, but also put them on things that will reduce that inflammatory process so that we put them on, you know, and there's certain, we, we have a lot of things in our armoritarium, but even simple things like using what are called epigallocatechins, EGCGs. So epigallocatechins, which is what's in green tea, block interleukin-1 beta. So if I tear my ACL and I get this escalation of these inflammatory cytokines, if I just then a few days after that injury start taking epigallocatechins, I'm going to blunt that response and I'm going to start, stop that degradation. Hmm. We, we also know, for instance, there's, there's a drug that's approved in Australia that we can have compounded here called pentacin polysulfate. And pentacin does a lot of things. It blocks interleukin-1-beta, but it also blocks these little enzymes that get escalated when we have an injury. So little enzymes that are designed to come in and sort of help us remodel the injury. So think about these little enzymes that come in. The initial thing is for them to kind of gnaw away at the cartilage and try and reshape it and remodel it. Well, the problem with that is if that keeps going, now my gnawing away at the cartilage has caused a progressive degeneration. So we know that this upregulation of these degradative enzymes, these bad enzymes, which is fine for a little while, but long-term creates that progressive arthritis. So what if we put everybody who has an injury at 20, for a, a brief period of time after that injury, we give them a little pentacin, we're going to stop that process and we're not going to see this progressive destructive changes that we see in, in people. There's a place for surgery. I do think if you, if you have an 18-year-old who tears their ACL, there's going to be benefits to repairing that ACL, but I'm going to also treat the system so that they can actually heal appropriately and hopefully not end up, you know, so I have serious arthritis, severe arthritis in my knees. And I do really well because I do a ton of stuff. My, my knees don't hurt me, but I have grade four arthritis in my knees because I didn't know any of this stuff, right? I tore my first ACL, what, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's where we have to start thinking and sort of changing. So people understanding that, okay, I'm not just going to go do surgery. I'm going to actually do some things to sort of fix the result of that. Yeah. So it's really boils down to inflammation. This is happening even despite an operation and can right. completely and go. Maybe worsened by an operation, right? What? Operation is going to kick up inflammation. Yeah. So you can also do things like, you know, you talked about platelet rich plasma, platelet therapies. Well, at the time of surgery, if I do things like put platelets in the knees or exosomes in the knee at the same time, well, then I'm going to actually help restore a more, a, a better balance of inflammation and encourage healing. Or we can do that after the surgery too. We can put, we can put things in the joint. Can you actually repair an ACL using regenerative therapies? It appears we might be able to. So it appears that if you target, you know, appropriately, that you might be able to actually completely repair the ACL. But there's some very cool new technology where instead of doing these big massive surgeries, there's a procedure now where you can actually just sort of stick a little, a little cord between the two missing ends of the ACL. And then you put that, you fill that with platelets and it's a much simpler surgery with a faster recovery and you're not going to destroy the mechanisms of the joint. So there's some very cool technology coming around in, in, in terms of even things like an ACL tear. Oh, wow. It's even if it's a complete tear, Completely because torn, I yeah. thought if there's a little piece left. And that's where, where you say, okay, well, if I've got two ends of my ACL like this and I throw platelets in there, are they going to come back together? Probably not. I mean, there's, there are some docs who say they're doing that but I'm not certain that you could do that unless there's a few threads left. And then I think you can, but there's no threads left, but this actually takes a little sort of, sort of graft that just you put between the two, which we never thought we could do with that filled with platelets. It seems to actually just, you can actually rejoin the two pieces as opposed to what we've done in the past, 
which is actually take a piece of your patellar tendon or take a piece of your quadriceps. And now I've yeah. destroyed the mechanism of the knee or I've changed the mechanics of the knee. Well, if we can actually directly repair the ACL, it's going to be much better. And that technology is being investigated right now and looks to be very successful. So hopefully treating the young people a little differently is going to help. But a lot of your listeners are on the other end of that, right? Like me, none of that was available. What do we do? Well, now we have to say, okay, well, I have severe arthritis in my knees, but if I'm going to keep that from progressing, once arthritis starts, it progresses. And that probably has to do with the upregulation of these inflammatory cytokines, these degradative enzymes. So now we have these degradative enzymes, these bad enzymes that are destroying cartilage. As they destroy cartilage, it creates more inflammation. More inflammation causes upregulation of those enzymes. So I have to say, I've got to do everything in my power to stop this inflammatory process. As you guys all know, is now aging in general yeah. is probably related to destruction of our immune systems, inflammation, chronic inflammation, whether that affects my brain or my heart. So I need to get my hormones regulated. That's important. Hormones are huge for joints. So if I have no hormones and I have these inflammatory processes going on, of course, I'm going to go from bad to worse and finally a joint replacement. There is a place for joint replacements too. I, they've been life-changing for people, but they're not you and, and you will never have a joint replacement that is as good or as long lasting as your own body. So if we can change this paradigm of, oh, it's just going to get worse, keep putting steroids in it, and then finally you can replace it. We've got to start with how do we fix you? How do we fix your body so that even if you have grade four arthritis in your knees, it doesn't hurt. And I'm not worsening to the point where the only option available to me is to replace my joint. And we can do that. Yeah. So we can do that with, the, with hormones. I, first thing I always do, get all the hormones regulated. People don't think about hormones and joints. They think about it for skin. They think about it for their sex lives. They think about it for hair. They think about it for their heart and their brain. They don't think about it for joints. And, and for instance, estrogen. Estrogen has a huge place, you know, we always, you know, for, for joint health. Especially tendons. So one of the reasons that women, when they're younger, don't tear, you know, you always hear about guys popping their hamstring tendon and their, their Achilles tendon, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if they're, if they're lower estrogen, high testosterone guys, but women don't do that until they get older. And that's because mm -hmm. estrogen's hugely beneficial for tendons. So if people who have start getting these chronic tendinopathies, you know, you're like, oh, I have my shoulder tendon and my elbow tendon are just bad. And the docs are like, oh, we'll put some steroid in it. And well, actually probably you need some estrogen because tendons thrive on estrogen and I'm going to help estrogen, you know, tendon health. So any of you guys who are sitting there with, you've got a chronic tendon in your shoulder and you've got a chronic tendon in your elbow. Honestly, a lot of times you're low estrogen and estrogen is going to dramatically help that tendon to heal and be healthy again. So, so that's a huge starting point. If somebody's then say older woman, who's uh, okay, losing her estrogen, which is not uncommon, and you would put them on some therapy to try to help a joint, is that a one-time thing, a, a short-term treatment, or would that person stay on the estrogen for other protective uh, mechanisms? I think everybody needs hormones, honestly. Remember our hormones are at their best, you know, when we're 18. Unfortunately, we were designed to sort of <laughs> reproduce at a very young age. I mean, 18, 20, that's when our hormones are our best. And after the age of like 23, you start to actually get a decline in hormones. So it's young. I mean, it's young that hormones start to decline. You know, puberty is really when oh, our yeah. hormones are at their sort of kind of best and, uh, and our immune systems are at their best at puberty. Is there anybody who I think doesn't need hormones at the age of 50? No everybody mm -hmm. and pro probably starting younger than that, but you have to sort of see, you know, symptomatically see what, what's happening and look at hormones. Everybody 
it, it needs hormones after the age of probably starting your 40s, probably younger is better because they're so important for tissue healing. So if I go 20 years with no hormones, a lot of damage is done. Now, can I reverse that damage? Well, we can get you on the hormones, which is going to hopefully stop the progression and help things heal a little bit. And that's where we may have to pull in other tools. But will my hormones all of a sudden rebound and all be all better? No. I mean, you know, my, my ovaries are not making estrogen anymore. I need to give it to myself or it's not going to all of a sudden rebound. So these are something that, you know, honestly, you should stay on and you need them, you know, unless you, unless you want to, you know, get old and frail and look old and have no sex drive and have thinning hair and have horrible joints, you're going to need hormones for the rest of your life. Um, and, you know, I will never quit hormones. I mean, honestly, you, you, you will, they're, they're life-changing for people. So when you say hormones, I'm, I'm assuming you're saying, talking about bioidenticals or does it not matter? No, I mean, you need bioidentical hormones. So for instance, progesterone, you know, and progestins, progestins are what, you know, what are in like birth control pills, things like that. Progestins are horse urine. I mean, they're, 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 they're nothing like progesterone. They don't sit in the same receptor. They cause completely different, different symptomatology because they're not, they're not binding to our progesterone receptors. So they have some effect to stabilize the uterus, but no good effects for our brain or our joints or our overall health and probably actually negative effects in terms of cancer risk. So you need bioidentical progesterone. You need a progesterone that looks like your progesterone. You know, you need estradiol, you need bioidentical estrogens, you know, testosterone, it, you know, testosterone gets neglected in women. And again, how do you, so one of the best ways to protect joints is to have more muscle. I'm going to protect my joints a lot by being stronger. And we right. now know that that goes beyond even the muscle being strong to sort of hold the joint together. We know that muscle is actually an endocrine organ. It actually makes something called myokines. So, and myokines have influences everywhere, including your brain, including your bones. Basically, if I have more muscle, I'm going to protect my brain. I'm going to protect my bones, but I'm not going to build muscle if I have no testosterone. It is, I, I can send you to the gym all day long and, you know, and you will get frustrated and you'll start to go, you know, I don't know why I'm not getting stronger. Now, women need different levels of testosterone. Some women are going to be, feel great on a lot of testosterone. Some women on very little. Some women may feel fine with, you know, minuscule amounts for a while. But eventually, you're not going to be able to rebound and build muscle. You, we, we know testosterone is the most anabolic hormone there is. You, you know, estrogen does help with muscle stabilization, but you absolutely have, have to have testosterone. And that gets so neglected in women. So much. I just told you my doctor uh, just visited her and she said testosterone is not necessary for women. I was shocked. And, and you hear it all the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, or I see women who, whose docs actually are savvy enough to put them on hormones, but don't put them on testosterone. So you know, when you look at young people, so a lot of our young women are on birth control pills. A lot of you guys who have daughters who are on birth control pills or who hopefully some younger people who are listening are on birth control pills. Well, what do birth control pills do? It's a great birth control method. One of the things they do is they raise something called sex hormone binding globulin. And sex hormone binding globulin binds testosterone, kind of a protective mechanism. So now I put these young women on something that's binding all their testosterone. So now I'm in my 20s. I've already have these very low testosterone levels, right? So I'm not even building muscle at the time when I really should be building a surplus of muscle so that I have some currency as I get older. So now I've blocked the ability in these younger women to, to even make, to make testosterone. Interestingly, once you stop birth control pills, it can take years 
many years, and some people I say maybe never, to restore sex hormone binding globulin levels to normal. So we may see blunted testosterone oh. levels for years after women stop birth control pills. So they have these low testosterone levels. So now they're, they're, muscle, they're starting to lose muscle in their 20s. And so what, what, wow. what's going to happen? Well, number one, you need myokines for bone health. So now you've started to lose bone at a very young age. We need it for joint health. We need mm -hmm. it for muscle building. And so we, we have to start looking at, you know, at, at you know, helping people so that they can do the things that are going to keep their joints from progressing into this stage. Um, and, and I would advocate that number one in that, in that realm is making sure hormones are stable. It's the first thing I do is say, listen, there's no woman over the age of 35 who has normal progesterone. I would say almost none who has normal <laughs> progesterone levels. So that's why women, you know, start to get, what is PMS? PMS is your estrogen levels are high, your progesterone levels are low and you're mean and you're bitchy and you know, nobody likes you. And um, well, that's what happens after the age of 35. So women are not sleeping well, they're more irritable because their progesterone levels are low. Well, where's that play on my joint? Joints have tons of progesterone receptors and it's necessary to make hmm. the fluid that protects our joint. So now if I have no progesterone yeah. and I'm not making this nice thick fluid to protect my joints, I've started worsening the arthritis. So progesterone is a key yeah. element in treating osteoarthritis. And it, it, you know, people don't do, they don't use it. And it's simple and it's safe and it makes everybody feel better. And, and nobody's doing that. You know, one of the things I do with almost all of my women with, and some of my men, because progesterone's in men too, is put them on a little bit of progesterone so that we can actually help the joints heal, especially if you're going to do a regenerative procedure, because I need good, adequate synovial fluid. This is amazing. I, you know, who would have thought we would be talking about hormones when you're talking about your joints? And I, I love this and I love this conversation. And I, I want to move it a little bit um, in a different direction because we have such little time and I still have so many questions. And so you've talked about hormones for some regeneration, some, some new technology procedures and some PRP, for example. Uh, so I'm wondering if some of these are generative treatments, whether it's a surgery or it's a PRP or some other injections you may give, what are your thoughts on fasting pre or during or post treatment? Because I just did an amazing course with Dr. Walter Longo, who's known for the fasting mimicking diet. He's part of my master's of the gerontology program at USC. And did, and he was explaining all these amazing benefits of, of fasting and, and, I was thinking, well, wait a second, if I go for another PRP injection, what if I were to include a fasting regime? And do you ever do that with your patients? Have you looked into that? Yes. And we actually try to encourage, uh, you know, encourage our patients to do that. So fasting helps increase stem cell population. So if we're going to do a stem cell procedure or platelets where we really need a lot of growth factors in play. So remember, it might not be the fast itself. Because we want after, you know, after we do a regenerative procedure, we want tons of growth factors to come into play. That's what's going to heal the tissue. So while you're fasting, you're actually going to suppress growth factors. For instance, IGF, insulin-like growth factors suppressed while you're fasting. But when you refeed after the fast, you get this big upregulation of growth factors. So we're going to increase the body's ability, the stem cell population, and then we're going to increase the body's ability on that refeed to actually heal. So if you can do, for instance, a three-day, like, you know, if you, if you do prolong the fasting mimicking diet for, you know, the four days beforehand, or even I'll have my patients just do, try and try and do a, you know, a 24-hour fast, even, or a 48-hour fast, and then you take platelets or anything, you can, umbilical stem cells, whatever it might be, and inject them. And now I refeed them afterwards. I'm going to see this big upregulation of IGF, right? I'm going to encourage the body to be anabolic or healing. Remember, while you're fasting, 
you're a little catabolic. You know, it's horror to rebuild while you're fasting. And there's a lot of debate. You know, I know Dr. Longo is, is he's a low IGF believer. And, you know, and we know that low IGF, low insulin-like growth factor seems to be correlated to longevity. But we also know that it's not correlated to healing, recovery, and muscle building. So what? that's mm -hmm. why probably the answer is low IGF and then surge IGF up and then low IGF and surge it up. So, so using the refeed after fasting and putting people anabolic after their fasting, I think is, is where there's a lot of benefits. So we use the fast to kind of get the body prepped. So we'll do that for, you know, and it depends on my patients, how some of them are just not going to do it. But if they will, we try and get them, we try and get them 24, 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever we can get them to do, do a procedure on them and then follow that with a really good anabolic refeed and you'll get the best outcome. Me refeeding what, for example, would kind of... So using protein, right, to, to, in that refeed, using amino acids, we put people on actually sometimes injectable amino acids, something called GACLIV, which is sort of, you know, a, an injection of amino acids. So we're helping with that, that anabolic state, that, you know, that rebuild state. You need to be anabolic to build tissue. You, you know, you're not going to... You know, it's, it's why there's a, it's a weird dichotomy between aging and muscle, right? That we know that, that people who have low IGF, they're more frail. They don't have as much muscle, but they may have an advantage to longevity. Now, the question is, do you want to live like that or do you want to live more strong? There's a balance there. And I think that's where you really want to work on kind of going. And we always sort of encourage cycling things. You want to be catabolic, anabolic, catabolic, anabolic, meaning break down, build up, break down so, you, so that you know, we know these huge bodybuilders probably aren't great for longevity, but big yeah. little frail people are going to have, they may live longer, but they're going to have more dementia. They're not going to feel great. There's a balance there. And there's a big argument in the anti-aging world about low IGF, high IGF, what's better? Yeah, he, he did say, he, he did make it clear though, after the age of 65, it's a magic number or not, but those people tend to have naturally low IGF levels. And this is where he would recommend to pick it up. So even though he's quite a low, you know, low protein, low IGF for under 65, after 65, the studies that he's been presenting were actually have, not having enough protein, being more frail, you are higher at risk right, for right. all cause mortality. So so yeah, there is, there is a, like you said, a balance and a point, you know, whether it's 65 or 55 or whatever, everybody's got to figure out, you know, how, how much and, and where is that balance, right. but it's really interesting that you are incorporating yeah, and, this. And, and, and I think it's why if we back up to all the regenerative procedures, which, you know, and I see this a lot and I see on Instagram where people say, oh, I had that, you know, that platelet's done to my hip and it didn't work. So you're just going to end up with a hip replacement, but go ahead and try it. Well, why don't regenerative procedures mm -hmm. work? If I take somebody it'd be a little bit like you, know, you take your field that's just filled with weeds and you throw some flower seeds into it. Not, not going to have a nice garden. So if I take somebody who has no hormones, who is eating crap, who basically their overall health, they're in an inflammatory state, and I take their own platelets and I stick it into their joint and I expect that all of a sudden their joint's going to be better, it's ridiculous. So of course I'm going to fail. And, and that's what mostly happens in the regenerative world. So even the docs who are doing regenerative mm. therapies, they're going to say, okay, well, we'll, try, we'll try sticking some platelets in there. And sometimes it works a little bit. But if yeah. I take that person and, and we will never just do a regenerative procedure without looking at labs and making sure that everything is in a state where people can heal. So what if I take that person and I get their hormones completely stable and I lower, I use things like EGCG to lower the, inter, the bad interleukins or pentacin to stop the degradative enzymes. So now I've, I've cleared out the weeds, I've killed the soil. Now let's put platelets or exosomes 
you know, or we'll use some peptide therapies for regeneration too. There's a lot of cool peptide therapies you, you can use for regenerative therapy. So we use something called AOD 9064, which is basically a peptide that you can stick into a joint that acts like stem cells. So now if I do that procedure, I'm going to have, and, and fasting. So I, and then refeeding inappropriately and using amino acids. Now my outcomes are going to be a heck of a lot better. So I get very, very frustrated yeah. when I see these and I, you know, I watch posts that people put on, you know, on Instagram and things like that. And I'm like, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, you can go try the playlist. It'll maybe help you a little bit for a little while. Well, of, of course it's not going to help if I, if the reason there's a reason you've had the arthritis in the first place. And now, you know, and yes. now I'm going to, I'm expect that all of a sudden I throw yourselves in there and it's going to be all better. It's not. So, and I would say yeah. about half the people that once we get their whole cellular milieu good. They don't even need the regenerative procedure. They're like, hey, I'm feeling pretty good. That's great. I love that you lay out that foundation. Because I asked my, the doctor gave me the PRP injection too. I was like, why is my research? I found it was like 50 to 80% success rate with PRP. Like what's going on? Because with me, it was fantastic. So yeah, he explained, you know, you need right. that foundation. Um, right, you're healthy. Good, good you're right, yeah. So, you know, but, but most people aren't, right? Most people aren't. Yeah. So you guys who are listening, you know, please, we're going to have to wrap this up. There are alternatives. There's so much. I actually, I have 10 million other questions, but I know we're, we, I want to leave the panel open for, for everyone who's been here and who's asked some questions as well. And we've only got 10 minutes left, but I really, I could have a whole other hour with you. So if you're ever open to, to come back, back, I am I, my favorite topic. Oh, there's too much information <laughs> to share. What about if adding high growth hormone before an operation, would that help? So we don't usually use growth hormone itself just because growth hormone is a little bit more difficult to kind of get balanced appropriately where people don't have side effects. And, and so what we try and use is some peptide therapies that actually upregulate your own growth hormone production or, or your own. It's really the IGF, the insulin-like growth factor. So your pituitary releases growth hormone which tells your liver to make IGF, insulin-like growth factor. And IGF is what is the anabolic piece. So that's what helps you build the muscle and heal from surgeries. All of our patients that come to us who are going to have a surgery, for instance, we will put them on some peptides like CJC and ipamorelin that are going to increase their own IGF production, their own growth hormone surges. So you can get a much more balanced levels, you know, by using your own body, using peptide therapies to use your, have your own body produce more IGF, as opposed to sort of giving a lot of exogenous growth hormone, which has some downsides and, and probably a little bit more risks and it's expensive and hard to balance. So I love if and we have a whole protocol, we put people on who are having surgery, which includes using sometimes IGF itself, and sometimes things that actually like CJC, ipamorelin or tesamorelin and ipamorelin, which are basically are peptides that make your body just release, produce and release more of your own growth hormone. So much more balanced way of doing it. But yeah, you're right on track. That really helps with healing or post platelets or anything like that. Yes. That's super interesting. So we have another question here. It's it, it's very long winded, but it, and, and we're not going to give personal advice. So just to you know generally give you, she's a 61 year old birth um, bioidenticals and some back pain, and she's waking up at night and lots of pain in the hips, and looking for solutions in hips during the sleep. She's had steroid shots and stuff. So if a patient comes with you with your hip pain on bioidenticals, an older woman, what would you um, generally look at in terms of treatments? So that's where, you know, the hormones are the foundation, but that's what we talked about that, you know, low back pain, for instance, is very, very related to upregulation of intraleukin-1-beta, this one inflammatory cytokine that causes 
a lot of destruction of the did. And, and you've got to work now on blocking these bad enzymes that are destroying the disc. Starting point that you can do on your very own is two things that we know dampen down interleukin-1 beta is melatonin, usually at a higher dose. So you have to sometimes get up to like even 20 milligrams of melatonin. But melatonin, they did a great mouse study where they actually took just a little tiny pin. They took mice that were bred to have no, they had very high levels of interleukin-1 beta. So they had very high levels of this inflammatory cytokine that we think destroys cartilage and discs. And they put a little tiny pinhole in the disc. Within two days, they completely degraded the disc. It's because this interleukin-1 beta gets inside the mitochondria, it gets inside the cell and it damages the mitochondria. When they blocked interleukin-1 beta and they did the same thing, no degradation of the disc. So we know that interleukin-1 beta plays a big role here. So if we can block that cytokine and we use kind of some, like we'll use some prescription things like pentacin, we love for that. But on your own, by using high-dose melatonin, 20 milligrams, or epigallocatechins, EGCG, it's usually listed as, usually about at least 500 milligrams twice a day, maybe even going up to 1,000 milligrams twice a day, and particularly use that at night so you don't get this, this upregulation of these inflammatory cytokines, you're going to really help that pain. That's you know, sort of one piece is sort of trying to block these cytokines. And Motrin, you know, ibuprofen doesn't do that. It doesn't block interleukin-1-beta, so it's not doing anything for that. So that's, that's a starting point that can be super helpful for that. There, there's a lot more because there, we also think that night pain that occurs with joints and backs is also due to sort of a dysregulation of some nerve growth factors that's occurring right where the cartilage and the bone come together. So we think there's a neurogenic piece, which is why night pain is so significant with a lot of people with back pain and joint pain is probably from this neurogenic stuff. And so we're working also on things that you can use to, to block these nerve growth factors. We're using peptides for that. So there's some really interesting peptide therapies that we're using that are super, super helpful for that. If you're in Europe, if you're in, you know, like Austria, Russia, you can get things like cerebrolysin, which is used for brain injuries and, and dementias. And, but what it's doing is regulating nerve growth factors. So it's been really, really shown to be beneficial in joint pain as well. Again, those are a little bit more high tech, but starting with the melatonin and again, go up to like 20 milligrams go up to a relatively high dose mm -hmm. and using the epigallocatechins to block the interleukin betas, you should start seeing some improvement. I think the, the also I heard, uh, I'm not sure if it was from you or somewhere else, but when you do high dose melatonin like that, you, you want to play around with it. The timing, it's not necessarily at night. You may need to take it in the morning or in the afternoon or something. And is that, yeah. so it's, so, so, yeah, it's tricky, right? Because we, we actually think it might be some of the metabolites of melatonin that are have, having the benefit for pain and inflammation, it probably depends on how rapidly you metabolize it. And so some people, if you give it to them right before bed, and that's and a lot of people will metabolize pretty rapidly and right before bed's great. They sleep well, their pain gets under control. Some people will tell you that didn't help at all. And in fact, I felt more awake. So I'll tell them to start pushing it earlier and earlier in the day because it really determines, you know, and some people that may be even, you know, much earlier in the day, like afternoon, or to figure out when you're actually metabolizing or getting these active metabolites that are probably having a lot of the effect. So do play with the dosing, try first at night. And then you're like, oh my God, that just kept me awake and didn't help at all. And try moving it a little bit earlier. And EGCGs, epigallocatechins are honestly, if you look at the benefit of epigallocatechins for muscle building, for joint, for brain, it's just zero downsides to them, except if you get super high dose. Some of our cancer patients will use very, very high dose epigallocatechins because they're very anti-cancer. You have to worry about liver when you get very high dose. But if you're under two grams, you don't really have to worry much about liver. And could you get enough EGCG from green tea or are you going to go? 
It's pretty hard. There is a brand of green tea that's super high that called P-I-Q-U-E, Pike Green Tea. So they have, that's, it's, it has a very, very high amount of epigallocatechins in it. It certainly helps, but it's a little hard to get that much with green tea, but it's certainly a helpful. It's a good thing to drink. I assume that you're measuring before you put somebody on the, the high dose melatonin and you measuring their melatonin levels. It's about everybody. No. I mean, in our patients who were, were kind of looking at completely across the board of hormones, remember melatonin is a little bit hard to measure. If you're taking melatonin, it's going to show up super, super high. It's, it's best measured in urine and it's going to show up very high if you're taking it. So you can measure and see if somebody's, you know, if somebody's in, in, and you really need a 24 hour urine measurement to do this. So it's, it's a little tricky to measure melatonin levels. And because melatonin has so few downsides, well, people just try it. And if 20 milligrams mm-hmm. is horrible and they literally they just feel like they're sleepy all day, I tell them to back down the dose. And then I have people who can tolerate even higher doses. But we know melatonin's benefits, anti-cancer in this. It was a debate. It's too much melatonin bad for you. I, I think it, 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 their symptomatology sort of will tell you there. There's people who just don't tolerate it and it's probably bad for them. I will tell you in some of our patients, yes, we do look at at melatonin levels. So our patients who are, who are comprehensively getting 24-hour urines, but not in everybody. Mm. And you're not, there's no risk of stop producing your own melatonin naturally if you keep taking it? So, so you want to restore your own circadian rhythm a bit too, right? So is taking melatonin going to, to disturb your own circadian rhythm? Doesn't appear to. It doesn't appear to be that you, don't, that you get sort of a super saturation and you don't rebound off of it when you stop taking it. But I would also argue that a lot of people will just keep taking it because they do feel so much better. And they are people who genetically have these high levels of, of these inflammatory cytokines that are being helped. And we know like breast cancer, look at the literature on you know, high dose melatonin and breast cancer. I mean, it's dramatic because cancers are inflammatory diseases too. Okay. We have to let you go now, but I have one question. There's a couple of, there's, there's a couple of people have the same question. Can you hang on one more minute? So they're both asking you is can bioidentical hormones, can you be on it for the rest of your life? Is it dangerous uh, to be on it for too no, long? No, I mean, I, I think you, unless you decide you just want to get old and frail, then you can stop them. Otherwise, you need to be on them for the rest of your life. Are bioidentical hormones dangerous? You know, one of the things I would advocate is that if, if I put somebody on hormones, I do like to know, you know, over time, how are they metabolizing them? Because estrogen can go down into what's called 4-hydroxyestrone, which is a bad metabolite. Using things like DIM, methane, or indole-3-carbonyl to help pathway metabolism is really helpful. Using, making sure methylation is good. But no, I mean, I, well, I stop bioidentical hormones only if I feel like I'm ready to die. To die. I mean, honestly, it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to look like Magdalena there okay. if you're not on hormones, right? I mean, uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I want to look like Magdalena <laughs> and you too. So I'm going to let you go, but I really want to um, share your information because you've got a ton of great stuff online. You have something called the Human Optimization Academy. People can find that at BLI, www.bli.academy and BLI stands for the Boulder Longevity Institute. I'll have all these links in the podcast notes and you've got courses. Um, some of them are free. I just bought the what to fix first course. I think it was brilliant. Um, and you can find that also on your website. Can you tell a little bit more briefly what, what to, if people can expect with this? I got a little frustrated because there are people who are listening to all this podcast and Instagrams and they're doing all, you know, everything. I mean, like, you know, they got their infrared sauna and their cryo and blah, blah, blah. And they actually were neglecting the, the very basics of health 
which again, you know, we sort of, so we said, how do we put this together for people? Because all that stuff's good, but if you don't have the foundation built, it's not going to really work that well. So we really decided we put together this course so people would have a little bit of a guide on start here, go here, go here. Then you can add on all your little tricks, you know, your, your little extra trick. But you know, I got patients who are on you know ten different peptides and doing cryotherapy and Wim Hof breathing, but their their hormones are crap and you know and they their micronutrients are crap. So, what to fix first course once goes through step by step with you through sort of four modules. Okay, start here, then go here, then go here, then go here, and then you can add on all your other little tricks. So it's it was sort of developed because of our frustration when these people would come in with, you know, everything under the sun in their armoritarium and not doing the basics. But it was also designed so that you guys could take control of your own health. And we're going to be following that with a course on how do you read your own labs? How, so you understand your own labs because your doctor doesn't. He understands whether they're red or not, but he doesn't understand what optimal is. Yeah. So we're going to have another course where we teach you how to understand and read your own labs. So all of this is our goal to say, you know, you're going to have to learn this stuff and not rely on your doctor to learn it. It's designed a little differently in that it's, a, it's, it's kind of teaching you guys like we might teach doctors very scientifically based, very much, you know, evidence-based medicine. When I give a lecture, I always have to back it up with science. And so we're not just going to say, go do this because I think it's the best thing. We're going to try and back everything up with science and teach you guys that way. So it's, it's almost like, I guess, a medical education. So, you know, instead of just a, a little more, a little more basic, it's a little more medical education for the lay person so they can become sort of their, in a sense, their own doctor. They're now taking control of your own health. So it's fun and it's cool. And I think it's, you know, your, your listeners are going to love it because it is a little bit, you know, it, it's, it's high enough level without being over the top that you're going to feel like, oh my gosh, I actually really understand this. I understand why I should do it now. Yes, exactly. You break down the science so that we can all understand it. And I just started the course and I can't wait to finish it, but I think it's foundational. It's important. And it goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning of the podcast is you become your own doctor. You become, don't put all your faith in the doctor and go and bring these, these questions to them. So thank you for putting this together. It's exactly what we all need. I think it's, it should be part of school education. Like <laughs> you should learn this. Yeah. From, and, and I would, and you know, you know, I have young kids. Well, I mean, my youngest is 14. They range all the way to 25, but you know, get your, your kids to, to do this course. Cause honestly, if we can start changing people at 20. I mean, if I knew now what I knew at 20, my knees wouldn't have severe arthritis, right? So if we can start changing the 20 year olds mindsets to this focus, so get your kids to watch this course. I mean, you know, you know, I'm fortunate that my kids are getting their friends to start watching this and learn this stuff because that that's what we're going to impact now at 50. They're not going to have the stuff that we've already unfortunately developed, right? We hope that we can prevent that. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful I can regenerate everything, but honestly, if I didn't get there in the first place, it'd be better, right? Absolutely. You're doing brilliant work. I'm going to sit down with my daughter and have her watch this with me too. So thank you for reminding me of that. Um, I know you got to get to work. You have a busy day. It's early morning there in, in Boulder, Colorado. I do seriously hope I can see you in person. I want, I want it all. <laughs> I want to regenerate everything. And I've learned so much from you already. You've been all over the podcasts, all over the, the biohacking and wellness world. Keep doing what you're doing. I got to have you back. Just just um, you're Aww. my new superhero. I'm, I, I just love what you do. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, they can find you so easily on Instagram and Facebook, uh, either Dr. Yurth with Y-U-R-T-H or at the Boulder Longevity Institute. You're on Facebook. You've got the website 
website, boulderlongevity.com. I have all the podcast notes, all the links, um, all coming in with this podcast. So please look out for that at hackmyage.com forward slash podcasts and you'll find it. So I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I love being here. Thank you, Magdalena, for for always reposting my stuff. And and I appreciate all you guys listening and taking the time, honestly. Let's just keep getting this message out there. We will eventually change the world. But thanks. I so appreciate you. And I appreciate you, Zora, for having me on here and and for sharing all this information. Thanks a lot, guys. Love you all. Bye. Bye. Well, hello, age disruptors. Today, I'm recording this podcast with a live audience, studio audience. And all of you guys attending this recording are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. So part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they're recorded and ask your own questions. So if you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com forward slash hack my age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but free breath work and meditation classes, private consultations, downloads, there's so much. So anyways, let's get going. Today, we are going to learn how to save our joints with somebody very special who's been circulating around the biohacking community for a while now, visiting every major podcaster from Dave Asprey to Natalie Nidham. And now she's with us. <laughs> and I'm talking about the one and only Dr. Elizabeth Yurt. Today, she's going to explain the root cause of all diseases, including osteoarthritis and what we need to know about regenerative medicine before considering surgery for our knees, hips, and shoulders. Yes, there are many non-surgical and non or minimally invasive treatments for arthritis, inflammation, and so many other degenerative diseases. And Dr. Yurt is trained in sports and spine orthopedics, functional and regenerative medicine, and even cellular medicine. So she really digs deep getting right into our cells, which may be the most important part of regenerative medicine. And after a long career in orthopedics, Dr. Yorth decided it was time to move her practice forward to the next level. And in 2006, co-founded the Boulder Longevity Institute. And I'm dying to visit this place myself. There they specialize in advanced research-based longevity medicine that has treatments like bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Yes, please. Um, Regenerative orthopedic procedures. Yes, please. And regenerative peptide therapy. Oh yeah, that's for me and next generative next generation regenerative services i know it totally sounds like a sci-fi movie so really it's amazing what 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 makes dr you someone we should be listening to well she is double board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and anti-aging regenerative medicine. And although she doesn't look like it because she looks so young, she has a long history as a specialist in sports, spine and regenerative medicine that includes a Stanford affiliate fellowship in sports and spine medicine and a dual fellowship in anti-aging and regenerative medicine and anti-aging regenerative and functional medicine through the American Academy of anti-aging medicine. So if all you heard right now were the words regeneration and anti-aging, that's fine. You got it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so do you think she's qualified? Yeah, I totally think so. And it's a big deal to even get one fellowship. She's got two, maybe even more. So just hang on. I'm, I'm not done yet. <laughs> this is still going on. Dr. Yu has been selected as one of the 25 mastermind physician fellows in SSRP, Seed Scientific Research and Performance. And this means it allows her to stay abreast and teach others in this growing field of cellular medicine. So that's amazing. And the really cool thing for athletic older people like me uh, is that she's also an active athlete herself. So she totally gets us. <laughs> and she also gets professional athletes because she's consulted with the San Francisco 49ers. And for the non-Americans listening, this is American football. And she's also been with the Stanford University women's basketball and soccer. She's a dancer herself. Yay, like me and was even the doctor for the San Jose Cleveland Ballet. Now she lives and breathes active human beings who wanna keep moving in their eighties and nineties and heck even their hundreds, why not? Because she lives in one of the health meccas in the world called Boulder, Colorado. And I've never been to Boulder, Colorado, but I hear it's one of the healthiest places to live. And get this, with all that she's accomplished, I just read, she has, hang on, five, Yes, five kids. And you're still married. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do this? So now before I introduce this amazing biohacking superhuman, I must read this disclaimer. And just for extra protection, you're going to hear it again at the end too. So all information, content, and material of this interview is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or health care provider. Dr. Yurth will not be answering questions related to your specific medical care or personal medical decisions. And before we start, I really want to thank my biohacking bestie, Natalie Nidham, for introducing us. And if you don't know Natalie, then you have to check out her amazing podcast too. And you can hear Dr. Yurt there as well. Um, you can find her at Biohacking Superhuman Performance on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So without further ado, please meet Dr. Yurt. Welcome. Wow. Thanks for that, that introduction. It makes me sound... <laughs> I'm like, you're superhuman. Not that important, but, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. I really do. I love, I love what you're doing. I love, you know, you and I talked a little bit beforehand about, you know, sort of changing the world of medicine. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to change the world of medicine by trying to get doctors to change. We have to get people to change and then the people will change the doctors because doctors get sort of set in their paradigms. I think, you know, after you spend so much of your life educating yourself in something, you, you're sort of a little reluctant to say, hey, maybe what I learned is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, what I find is trying to teach doctors that maybe you need to rethink, you know, doctors seem to, they, they've gone through, you know, at least here in the United States, you know, four years of college and then four years of medical school and then another four to eight years of training. And then to go back and say, oh, wow, actually everything we just learned for all that time has been changed. People don't want to hear that. And so I think the key is all of your listeners have to learn this for themselves and then hopefully find a physician that they can work hand in hand with, not who's trying to actually tell them what to do, but who will actually sort of discuss things with them and work with them, which I think that's the key is you guys are going to have to reach out and learn this stuff and then hopefully find a provider who will kind of work with you alongside you, not as your you know, we, we always say sort of taking the patient from 
from passenger to pilot. We want you guys to guide your own medical care. We don't want the doctors to be guiding your medical care. You guys have to do that. And I think that's what all your listeners are trying to do. And I kudos to you guys to read for, for learning this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really hard though, these days. I, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but to find doctors who are open-minded like that. And so I think there's still a little bit of an ego there where yeah. you're the patient and I'm the doctor and I've been doing this for years and you know, nothing. And who are you to tell me? And and it's intimidating because you, you know, you're not a doctor, but you have these ideas and sometimes they poo-poo it. Oh, you heard this on the internet or some podcast, like right. it's, it's really hard. So I, I really encourage people to, to push on, like you, you said, to bring this information, to come prepared, to bring the data. You can print stuff out and show the doctor say, well, this is a study I read. I know it's only one, but you know, it seems pretty significant you know, you got to change the paradigms. And I think some of our biggest problem is that we put all our faith in the doctor and not so much in ourselves and how we feel and what we are doing, because you, you hear these stories all the time where you, you, you people go to the doctor and say, I feel like shit. And the doctor says, your blood work is fine and go home. But you're like, I still feel like shit. <laughs> like, well, what do I do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, medicine is still a disease-focused disease focused practice, not a health-focused practice. And until we change that, which is not in the best interest of doctors or pharmaceutical companies or people who are making hardware to put in joints, you know, it's not in their best interest. There's a lot of money there. And so unfortunately, what, what will ultimately change things is when people are, are saying, I'm not going to go do that anymore. I'm going to do something else. Well, then the world will have to follow because there won't be the money in it anymore. So it's going to take a little bit of a push from the consumer and then just finding doctors. I mean, we have patients all over the world now, you know, because video has allowed us so much, you know, I can look at MRI scans through video. I can, you know, have people give me a lot of history, even with a joint, even without an exam now, because technology now with an MRI scan, I can see a lot of what I need to see. I, you know, and so it's reaching out to looking for somebody who is going to work with you and not tell you what to do. You know, I always say, listen, there's tons of options here. This one might not be the best for you. This one might not. You've to sort of figure that out for yourself. You know, I encourage your listeners to 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 look. I mean, like I said, we have patients in, you know, Israel. We have patients in New Zealand, Australia. You know, Europe. We have patients all over the U.S. who are, you know, we try to do exactly that. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna tell you my thoughts on things you can do. And then it's up to you to sort of make that decision. So reach out. I mean, the doctors are out there. Eventually, the world will say, wow, nobody's coming to me for my steroid injections anymore. Maybe I should look at something else. Yeah. This is a very important point. I think you and I both have ACL tears and, um, and we at a young age. And so I'm 51 now and I tore it when I was about 23 or so. And so I've been 20 years looking at doctors and you get half of them who say do surgery right away. The other half who say you're still young, you have time. But the ones who say do surgery right away, I've always asked, I said, you know, is there anything else I can try before surgery? There's a spectrum, right? There's gotta be something. And always the answer was no, you need it now. And this disappoints me because I've been living over 20 years pretty well, like without uh, an ACL doing a lot of other things. And, and recently I, I discovered PRP, which I think we'll maybe talk about as well as some of the options, but there is a spectrum. And I'm so glad you as a doctor, we need more people like that who say, here's the options, not just one surgery done. We need more people like that. So thank you for 
leading the way and in, in offering this to your patients. So I would love to know, I, I need to explain people what is regenerative medicine first before we even get into that, because I think a lot of people may not even know it's either doctor or no doctor. Right. And I think people also, people always ask me, they go, oh, do you do holistic medicine? And I said, you know, I, I don't really think of it that way. You know, it will combine, you know, what I consider more holistic, meaning sometimes you'll pull an acupuncture or things like that. But honestly, we consider it more futuristic medicine than holistic medicine in a sense what we're trying to, you know, as opposed to sort of just looking at, at using some, you know, and, and we do obviously exercise and diet and, and things like that are, are paramount. And that is more holistic. But we're going to pull in the stuff that's sort of bridging that gap of technology and research. I often give the statistic that insulin as a drug between the time of its invention and discovery took 17 years to get to market as a life-saving drug, and which insulin's basically just a peptide. Like all yeah. the peptides that we use, insulin's a peptide. And it took 17 years for this very safe peptide that our body produces to be put into practice. Think of the number of deaths that incurred in that 17 years time, right? And that's just the way our medical system works. So if we can take these things, these entities that have, that we know that they've been proven safe, which that's the first thing, proven safe, but between the time that a, a drug or a procedure has been proven safe and effective to the time it actually gets to market, it's 15 years. So what we're trying to do is get that to, to people earlier, right? It pushed the, the limits a little bit on that, bridge that gap between practice and research. And so I consider that, you know, when you really truly look at regenerative medicine, it's trying to find everything available that is safe, effective, and get it to people so that we can actually both prevent progression of disease so that we all live to be 130 healthily but also to try and potentially reverse disease, to regenerate tissue, to try and get us younger. So I, I think that, that it's... Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.